John Wayne, come up and speak and join us. Let's give him a hand. All right. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure to be back with you uh, this Sunday. Uh, unfortunately, my family didn't join me. Uh, they uh, said, we heard you enough last week. We're not coming back. Uh, no, they're all uh, actually uh, serving uh, in different ways at our home church. So, uh, But it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to uh, talk for, for two weeks in a row around this uh, topic of uh, love as the moral of God's story. And uh, last week, uh, just to, to give a quick recap, uh, the four main points from last week, uh, the title was uh, God is the author of love. Uh, and so I say love is God's word. Love always has been God's word. Separation from God is separation from love, and Jesus is the expression of God's love. Uh, And that's, I think, the big uh, focus that I wanted to emphasize last week was this acknowledgement. We live in this culture that talks about love all the time. Can't, Can't stop talking about love. And love becomes a very judgmental word as well, uh, where there's a lot of questions of what does it mean to love? How should we love? And I think we need to, to root and ground ourselves in uh, the scriptural message that love is God's word. Love flows from God. Any truth that there is in love is connected to God. And so this, this week, uh, I thought it'd be important to talk a bit more on the focus of, of love as, as we express and experience and understand it. And so uh, I thought one way of doing that is to talk about uh, how not to lose the plot. If, if love is the moral of God's story, how do we re- remain uh, connected? How do we remain in God's story uh, how do we live out that story well? Uh, it's very easy to lose the plot. Uh, for me, it's very easy to just lose things in general. Uh, I used to have, uh, when I was a youth pastor, one of the students in my youth ministry gave me a keychain and said, keys I haven't lost yet. So you can imagine the kind of person who receives that as a gift. Uh, unfortunately, when I went on a uh, conference uh, to Chicago and uh, a friend of, uh, of mine, uh, Kim, who's a, a pastor out in Western Canada, we uh, rented a car together, drove, flew together back to Vancouver where we lived. And uh, once we landed and I needed to get into my car to leave, I realized, oh, I don't have any keys. <laughs> the worst part was that it was my keychain that says, keys I haven't lost yet. So I had to phone the rental company. And I said, you know, I left a pair of keys in your car. And uh, she said, oh, okay. Uh, I said, well, uh, it's an orange tag. And she, was, she wasn't having any of it. So I realized after about a minute of trying to get her to just admit she had my keys, finally said, look, it says keys I haven't lost yet. She's like, oh, I've been waiting for you to call. <laughs> so no, that's great. That's great. Uh, but my friend Kim and I, we also have a, uh, we, like, we like football. We like watching football. We like Canadian football. I like, I like any football. Uh, and so we were in Calgary at another time with a different uh, conference, and uh, we decided we'd go and watch the British Columbia Lions. We're playing the Calgary Stampeders. I hate both of those teams, so uh, you know there wasn't a lot in it other than just watching football for me. Uh, but because Kim and I both have this, this, I don't know if it's a gene or if it's just maleness or what it is, we, we lose, forget things, uh, we parked the car near the stadium in, in Calgary, near McMahon Stadium, and we made sure, we made, you know, certain that we looked up to see what street it was on, 24th. Went to the game, enjoyed the game, left the stadium, walked back in the general direction of the car, and uh, I I actually was able to get a street view uh, here. And uh, we realized when we came to the intersection, I don't know if you can see it, but it's 24th Street and 24th Avenue intersect. And they don't just intersect, they kind of 
intersect and then turn and kind of go the same direction still. At least that's in my mind how it worked. Uh, so after a few minutes of deliberation, we decided to, we chose one street, walked down it, and we did eventually find, uh, find the car. Uh, but that's how it is sometimes with, with plots. You know, we can lose the plot. Why? Well, just because we're maybe a little bit ignorant or we haven't paid attention or we're not paying attention. Uh, and we can lose the plot with God's story. We can lose our, our grounding, our rooting in love because we're just not paying attention. Because we're just not sure what's going on. We're, not, uh, we're, we're maybe just leaning into our ignorance. Uh, there's another way we lose the plot, though, as well. It's not just because we have forgotten or because we've been a little bit ignorant or absent-minded. right? It's also willful. Uh, and uh, John Calvin, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm not uh, a Calvinist in any uh, real deep sense, but he has some, some wise words for us in different ways. He says this in his Institutes. Uh, he says, uh, From the apparently common vice of idol worship evident in the Old Testament... We may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. So it goes, man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. Some people uh, shorten this to just say, you know, the heart, the human heart is an idol factory. We, we find things and we just pump them full of value. The problem is the only real value, the only real truth, the only real ultimate end is God, is being in his presence, is being in his eternal presence and journeying to that end. But Calvin's recognizing this, this part of human nature where we're able to take just about anything and turn it into a God. Right? If we're, we're mildly talented in some area, well, then we just infuse all of our time, all of our energy into that and easily make that a God. If we find some part of, and, and let's, let's leave maybe the obvious idols aside, we maybe find some part of doctrine and we're going to make that what everybody else must absolutely conform to. Otherwise, they can't possibly be a real Christian. Right? We make even different parts of, of uh, uh, church doctrine idols. We need to begin with, in all things, our love for God. Doctrine is incredibly important. I think we talked about this last week. But it's important that we are rooted in a love of God that shapes us and that guides us. So if it's easy to lose the plot because we can be ignorant, if it's easy to lose the plot because we can be willful, we can make things gods that simply are not worthy of worship, how do we keep from losing the plot? Well, I think, again, 1 John 4 uh, helps us here. And uh, I just want to read the passage that we uh, focused on last week. And I said we were going to focus a bit more on the last two verses of 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Uh, so to, to recap from last week, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right, here we, we get directed in this, this uh, area of, of ethics, of morals, this word ought. Right? Here's something you ought to do. We ought to love one another. God lives in us. Uh, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And I just want to emphasize these two parts here. Uh, one in verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are called to love. Loving God first brings order to our lives. But we are responsible also to love one another. Christian ethics is rooted in this idea of love. And it's rooted in this responsibility that we have to love each other. Second, though, and I think this is this, this real beauty that's expressed in, uh, in 1 John 4. Uh, and we talked about this just before uh, we celebrated communion last week. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We are this expression of God to the world. How? Not because we have some great master plan for evangelism. Not because we are able to somehow uh, attract people uh, right, to, to come to our, our gathering or come to our event. These are not the fundamental evangelistic tools we have. The basic fundamental evangelistic tool we have is being the church, is loving one another in God's love. In fact, without that, everything else we do is kind of scammy, right? It's, it's kind of like, well, we're just, we're, we're, you know, it's almost like a pyramid scheme. Uh, you know, if I bring two friends, you bring two friends. We have nothing to offer other than God's love. And John says, it's God's love manifest in us. If we want people to see God, it starts with us loving one another. Now, I, I uh, think uh, ethics most of the time. And so when it comes to thinking about uh, these words of ought, uh, and especially the two pieces of verse 11 and verse 12, one where uh, we're being told, you know, there's a standard, there's something we should do. We should love one another. And the second, saying, well, in loving each other, we are reflecting God's image. We are making God's love known. Uh, and I think when it comes to ethics, and I, I, uh, I, I want to think about love in terms of Christian ethics, Christian morality, there's a few different questions we need to recognize and understand. And so uh, when I think of moral re- reflection, there's really three types of questions I think about. The first is, and this is the basic question people ask uh, today looking at the world. It's what are we or what are they doing? This is a descriptive question, right? This is where we, we look at what's going on and we say, well, what, what is going on? What are people doing? The issue is we live in this age where that becomes the justification for everything, right? I mean, I, I grew up at a time where, you know, uh, it wasn't just kind of a funny saying. Our parents literally said to us, hey, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you jump off also? Right, uh, And, uh, you know, that's that basic question of, well, what are people doing? And we kind of leave ethics there. And there's, there's, there's Christian presses publishing books that are rooted in this question. It's an anthropological look. It's a study of human behavior that just says, well, what are people doing? And it builds a Christian ethic around that. This is an important question. 
It's important to look and see what are people doing, what are we doing. We can't escape observing. But if that's our only ethical question, if that's the only piece of moral reflection we do, we're not really doing ethics. So we come to the second question, what should we, what should they be doing? Now, here we we really properly are doing ethics. We're asking those questions that have a should or an ought in them. We're we're acknowledging some kind of standard. Uh, We're saying, listen, it's not just that people are doing things in the world. There's a way that we should act. There are things we should do, and there's things we shouldn't do. And actually, a big part of Christian ethics is having our hearts reshaped and reframed so that we want to do the things that we should do, and that we want to avoid the things that we shouldn't. Right Here we do get into this idea of, of ethics, because we're talking about standards. We're acknowledging there is a standard, that God is the standard. But for Christian ethics, you actually can't just stop at asking these types of ethical questions. Uh, and I might lose you here with this next <laughs> term. We need to ask eschatological questions. Right? We need to ask questions that have the end in mind. We need to ask questions that are rooted in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to ask questions that recognize there's going to be a day where we will be revealed as God's children in fullness. But we're living now for that day. We're living now towards that day. So I don't think in Christian ethics, when we think about Christian morality, when we ask the question, well, what should we do? We also need to pair it with the question of what will we become or who are we becoming? And we are becoming mature in Christ. We are living and leaning into and journeying towards the day, that glorious day, when against all the odds of what it looks like here in this sin-saddled earth, God will reveal us in the perfection of being his children. Paul is constantly reminding his young churches of that day and of living towards that day. What I want to do this morning then is to recognize that between here and that day is the field of love. That's what we live in. We live in and we train ourselves in love. So how do we keep the plot? How do we track with the story? And, and I want to offer just uh, you know, three uh, thoughts on how we do that. And the first is a part of what we've just been doing this morning. We worship God together. We worship God together. Uh, this is critical to keeping the, the plot. This is critical to understanding love as the moral of God's story. Now, by worship, I do mean something more than just we came together and we sang, right? And we did way more than that this morning. We prayed together. We gathered together. We even mentioned the idea of giving as part of worship. Thank you, Natalia. Right? That these are parts of worship. We don't just give because, hey, we've got to keep the lights on. Right? That's, that's foundational to No, this is a part of us worshiping God. All of this is. And, and we live in a time where we can often think of the term religion as a, as a, a dirty word. 
right? And there's, if you go on YouTube, you can find spoken word and all sorts of things saying this is about relationship, this is not about religion. I actually want to say to you, this is really significantly about religion. Why? Because religion, ritual, liturgy, seeking meaning and finding it in God, this is an inescapable part of life. We are going to worship something. Gathering together as the church, gathering together to sing worship songs, to read scripture together, to pray together, to tithe and sacrifice. These are parts of training us in God's story. These are parts of of learning to love. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, and I still do love basketball, but I would go to basketball camps uh, in the summer, and they were a lot of fun. We would play on different uh, teams, so you'd have training during the day, and in the evening you would have a a league, and and, uh, it was just one week long. They packed a ton into it. But they always packed into it uh, these sessions where we would watch uh, Lessons by Lehman. And George Lehman was a, an American Basketball Association uh, basketball player, and you'll see from his picture that uh, uh, clearly not a uh, modern-day uh, basketball player. Uh, the card itself kind of gives you that 70s feel, which is the time when he played. Uh, but we would watch these films, and, and films, right? It's on the double rotation there. Uh, they didn't tell us to go to a web page or anything to, to find these. Uh, and, and George Lehman would just be shooting, and he would never miss except for those frames where they'd show him shoot and then they'd cut and it would just be the ball going through the hoop. So they, they had the magic of editing in the 70s as well, uh, in the early 80s. But one of the things that he would reiterate, and, and I haven't seen those films since probably 1984, uh, but I remember this. He would talk about people falsely think, thinking that practice makes perfect. Right? That, oh, practice makes permanent, perfect. And his point was that, no, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. What you practice over and over again, right, that's going to be what you do. And the issue with, with shooting a basketball is that it's your, it's your mechanics of your body. You are teaching muscle memory. So that by practicing perfect form, that's a way of being able to shoot the ball well. Well, what we do on Sunday mornings, and what we do as the church through the week, whether it's through uh, spiritual disciplines we practice or whether it's through uh, other gatherings we come to, we are practicing being God's children. We are practicing love. But not just any sort of love. We are practicing love as it comes to us from God, as we recognize and acknowledge him as the source of love. But we are practicing that. We are training our hearts in love. We do that when we express love to God. We do it when we submit to the words of Scripture. We do it when we open our bank accounts and acknowledge, God, this is yours. We depend on you in this life. But we enter into worship. Why? One significant reason is because we want to be people whose worship is shaping us into the image of God. And we need to meet regularly. Why? Because there's all sorts of other forms of worship around us. They come to us through screens of all varieties. We walk to them when we head into a mall and find all these different new things that we can worship. Or just in Amazon, again, online. 
right? We find them in the things we spend our time with. Maybe some really good things. But they are things, they are practices that we do that are forming us and shaping us. And it's so critical that we gather as the body, that we submit to God, that we recognize him as the source of love, and that we pray for him to shape us as we gather together. There's a neat little book by uh, James Smith, uh, a uh, Canadian scholar uh, who uh, teaches in the United States at Calvin College. Uh, It's called uh, You Are What You Love. Uh, You may have read this. You may not have read this. Uh, He says, we are what we love, and our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. We are what we love, and our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. Now, there's a couple of foundational convictions that Smith has. One is that human beings aren't primarily thinkers. They aren't primarily believers. They are primarily lovers. It's what we do. We can't escape it. But we need to be retrained, reformed, recalibrated. And that's what worship does, according to Smith. Worship is us continually acknowledging God as the end of all things, continually being recalibrated so that our our life is directed to him as its end, and so that our habits are reshaped and reframed. So we intentionally worship together. We intentionally sing praises to God. We intentionally read scripture. We intentionally tithe. We intentionally pray. Why? Because this builds in us habits so that when we're not thinking about it, our body has, through muscle memory, through the shaping and conforming of our will to God's will, we respond appropriately in love to God. This is about uh, Reformation, and uh, this next picture is just uh, to get a sense again of recalibrating. Uh, And Smith says, in short, if you are what you love, and love is a habit, then discipleship is a rehabituation of your loves. Discipleship is reframing, reshaping, uh, making it so that your habits are rooted in God's love. Okay, And so this means that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than of acquiring information. And it's important to recognize as we gather, as, as the children gather b- beside us, this isn't just a, a downloading of doctrine. This isn't just a downloading of information about God. This is formation. This is God forming us in the image of his son. And it's important we recognize that as we gather. Dave mentioned, mentioned Lent. Last week we celebrated uh, communion together it's important we recognize these two as these practices of formation. Uh, it's interesting, social media gives us this little peek into uh, everyone's lives and in many ways into everyone's thoughts. And I, and I saw this week uh, a friend had posted uh, a note about Lent and, and thanking her daughter for introducing her into Lent and uh, saying, hey, after 40 days, I'm going to look different. I'm going to have lost some weight and, and I'm going to look a lot better. And, and my heart ached a little bit or a lot, because that's not what Lent is, right? Lent isn't about us. 
Lent isn't about us conforming better to the images of society or to feel better about our, our body images. Lent is about God. It's about a reshaping and a reframing of us. But we live in this age where, you know, we have this, this urgency sometimes to go, oh, I, gotta, you know, I, I need to make room for God. And really, I think a lot of times what we do is we try to find space for God in our story. When Christianity is about us finding our place in God's story. And worship is helping us to form us, to shape us to that end. So we need to worship together. Uh, The second point I want to make is that... uh, and actually, I'm going to need to see it because it's slipped on my mind here. Uh, sorry, elevate neighbor love. We need to elevate neighbor love. We need to have a higher uh, view of what it means and what Scripture teaches us in terms of neighbor love. Uh, this is a, a, a painting, a rendition of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and if you're familiar with uh, this story, and uh, I'm going to just basically assume that you are, but I'll, I'll read uh, the beginning. It says, on, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think it's important we recognize, here's the question undergirding, underlying the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You, will answer, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And here is where we get this story. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? Jesus references what he refers to as the two great commands. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbor yourself. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbors yourself. And to justify him, uh, himself, the man says, well, then, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell this story, uh, the uh, familiar story between uh, the, the Jew and the Samaritan and this Jewish man who's beaten up on the road and, and his closest neighbors walk past him. Leaders in the community won't go to help him. But this Samaritan, where there's strife and there's tension and there's uh, conflict, he's the one who stops. He's the one who is the neighbor. He's the one who sees not a Jew by the road. He sees someone in need. And Jesus says, this one, right? This, this, is, this is what it is. Uh, to have a neighbor. And here's your example, this despised Samaritan. Here's your example of someone who understands neighbor love. And I want to remind you again, this story is in answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We, I think, find it easy to detach neighbor love from salvation. And and I'm not here to offer you a works salvation. I'm not here to offer judgment on your life. I'm not here to say that anything other than the absolute grace of God is that which saves us. But Jesus, when asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, tells this compelling story of how an outsider defines what neighbor love is. 
We need to hear that. We need to recognize that God's people are marked by love of neighbor. God's people are marked by agape. We talked about this word last week. God's people are not marked by this exchange. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do this for me, and then I'll do something for you. We are marked by this love that is pure venture. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter if or whether you can do anything for me in the future. God's love is pure venture. We need to live that out in our lives. We need to live that out in our neighborhoods. As I said last week, we need to live that out in our families. And this, this whole week, I just found myself defaulting to, listen, Carter, if I'm going to give you a ride, then you've got to complete this first. Okay? And this isn't an anti-responsibility rant. right? We do need to teach responsibility. But we've got to somehow do it without losing agape. Without our children uh, having a sense that our love is something different than this New Testament. Pure venture. Godly love. I have the answer in theory for you. I don't have any great answers in practice other than continually getting up off the mat, recognizing this love, praising this kind of love, thanking God for this kind of love, reminding my children to judge me by this kind of love, to make sure that I'm loving them this way as I try to guide them to love others this way as well. We need to be marked by this neighbor love. Why? Because this is what God's people look like. We get a deeper challenge. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I want to say one more thing about that, and that is from Matthew 25. And this is the story where the the, uh, wheat and the tares are separated, the story of, of judgment. And Jesus says uh, in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. We're seeing here again just this reiteration. And again, I am putting a bit of a fine point on it. Here's what God's people look like. They recognize their neighbor as the one who is in need, the one confronting them with their need. And they meet those needs. In verse 40, it says, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And we don't just get the positive side of the story. We get the negative side. Judgment on those who saw the thirsty, who saw the naked, who saw the homeless, and did nothing. And the message is, well, that's how you're treating Christ. So I just want to elevate neighbor love, right? To recognize this close tie it has to salvation. Why? Because this is the way God's people love. This is the kind of love we're training in. And then we can look, uh, as we look to 1 John 4, uh, verse 19 to 21. Okay, and we talked about verse 19 last week. We love because he first loved us. 
which on the surface of it in English sounds like exchange. God loved me, I love him back. Right? As though that's the base of where our love is. But the Greek words here are offering something different, and I think the context then bears this out. It's that God is the first lover. Love flows from him. So those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. So we have, you know, kind of both a carrot and a stick here in terms of neighbor love, right? Recognizing that neighbor love is the love of God's people. In hatred and contempt, the refusal of the other, that is not God's people. That is not a reflection of God. Right? And we get this in these harsh terms. Right? To hate one another. This is, this is a sure sign that you don't know God. You don't know love. So the reminder again to be God's people. And we need to elevate neighbor love. We need to elevate this so that we remind ourselves. Neighbor love is this sign of who we are. It's the love, and it's not just the love we demonstrate outside of the church. It begins here, what God's doing in our hearts so that we express this love to one another. The third thing I want to say is that we need to do extraordinary acts of love. We need to be superheroes for love. We should think of what are the grandest, what are the greatest things we can do for God and that's the things we should put our energy into. Does that sound like the gospel? I'm playing with you a bit. We'll go to the next slide. We need to do ordinary acts of love. Our love needs to be far more ordinary. It needs to be far more rooted in the everyday. And we have this example of foot washing in John 13. Uh, and, and Jesus here takes this lowly position. Uh, he takes the position of the servant to wash feet. It says, when they had finished washing their feet, he put on his, his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? Here they come to this home. Here they come to this meal. And who is it? It's their teacher. It's their master. It's the Messiah who is going to wash their feet. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Uh, We'll move to the next slide. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no uh, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now sometimes, and I've been a part of foot washing ceremonies, and there's a real beauty in that as a, as a liturgical practice. Uh, and it's a beauty on both ends. Uh, it's very, uh, you know, we may initially think, oh, it's, it's hard to wash someone else's smelly, dirty feet after they've been walking around for a day. What I found is it's much harder to have my feet washed. There's a lot of humility involved in the practice altogether. But I think the danger here, the risk is, is that we just see this as a, as a, as a neat 
thing we can do to try to animate the gospel in a worship service. Or that we treat it as though it's symbolic or, or metaphorical for how we should treat each other. I think we need to recognize the real practical thing here. That Jesus washed their feet. That he did this mundane, lowly. He took this low position in order to do this act of love. Does this mark our lives? Are we looking for the low position? It's kind of ingrained in us to not do that, right? It's ingrained in us to have the high position, to dominate others, to be able to climb ladders. I remember sitting uh, with friends years ago uh, when our, our kids were much younger, and uh, we were sitting in their, their family room, and uh, one of the, the kids uh, had sat in the dad's chair in the room. And the dad walked in the room, and uh, he's like, hey, you got to move. And the kid didn't move, and the dad grabbed arm and leg, threw the kid out, plopped down in the chair. <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> I don't think this is a parable of the gospel here. Right? Dads, I mean, there's chairs in my house that I like, and I like to sit in them. But my kids need to see me sit on the floor. My kids need to see me give them good things at my own cost. For all of us, we need to seek low positions, servant positions. Why? Because in these ordinary ways, we reflect Christ. He washed their feet, not because uh, you know, it was going to be some great metaphorical practice. He washed their feet because that's what a servant would do then and there. There are so many ways we can serve one another. But we've got to open our eyes to it. And not only that, we've got to reject the ways we're trained to serve ourselves. We've got to reject the ways that we're conditioned to always seek the best for ourselves. Jean Vanier offers us a definition of love that is challenging uh, and that is, uh, for me, uh, convicting. Uh, uh, Jean Vanier is the founder of the L'Arche movement. L'Arche is a, uh, it began as a, a Catholic movement where uh, Jean Vanier brought two men with uh, cognitive uh, disabilities uh, to live with him. In, in France, he brought them out of an institution and to live in his home, to garden with him, to share meals with him. He did not bring them out so that he could help them. L'Arche is about sharing life together. Okay. Jean Vanier says, Love doesn't mean doing extraordinary or heroic things, it means knowing how to do ordinary things with tenderness. Love means knowing how to do ordinary things with tenderness. This is a place where I lose the plot. This is a place where I, I can struggle to do ordinary things with tenderness. I, I get tired after the third, fourth time I've asked for something to be done. I get tired of doing uh, mundane things myself. I get tired of you know, bringing out the recycling and the garbage uh, when I'm in my mind, I think somebody else could have done this. Well, why can't I be the one who does it? Right? Why can't that be my role? And why can't I do it with tenderness? Why can't I do it with gentleness? 
Love means knowing how to do ordinary things with tenderness. I, I think we need to, and we're, we're conditioned again, we're trained to want to accomplish great things in this life. I remember at my, my uh, college graduation when I graduated with a pastoral degree, and I remember one of my friend's dads coming up to me, and his words to me were, I, I look forward to the day uh, when I'm going to you know, hear of you leading a large church. Uh, and I, 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 this is a man who I respect. This is a man who lived a life serving God. But I remember you know, looking back on that and thinking about that, but is that, is that what I'm called to, to do? Is that what I'm called to be? Is that what we're called to be? To just build big churches? To just have big numbers? I think we're just called to be the church. We're called to live ordinary love in a violent world, in a world of conflict. We're called to tenderness. Tenderness in our families, with our children, with our spouses. To tenderness in our neighborhoods when our neighbor's dog has pooped again on our lawn. To tenderness in our interactions at schools, at workplaces, on public transit. This is asking a bit much, but also on the roads. Right? Are we a people marked by this tenderness? This is, this is the training that God is doing in us. This is the plot the plot that he has called us to, to be the image of God, following Christ, empowered by his spirit in this lost world. How not to lose the plot? Uh, You may be able to think of a number of different ways. The ways I offer you to you this morning, to worship together, to worship God together, to elevate neighbor love, to, to seek to understand neighbor love, and to uphold it is this standard that we live by. And in that, to do ordinary acts of love. Uh, we spend most of our time in uh, referencing as a base, 1 John 4, 7 to 12. I want to close with Ephesians 4. Because I think this is another place uh, of the many in the New Testament that refocuses us and reminds us what is the story that we're living in. What is the story we've been called to? And Paul says this, We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, bringing together the apostles' teaching with our behavior, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example we have in your son. Lord, I thank you for the teaching we have of the early church, and I thank you for the faithfulness of the church through the centuries. I ask that we today, as your children, as your people, would be reminded of how important it is to gather together under you, to be shaped by your word, by your spirit. Lord, to elevate neighbor love in a world that talks about love all the time and in many different ways, Lord, that 
the light we shine is the light of your love. And that it begins in our love for you and it shines through in the love we demonstrate for one another as we gather as your people. And Heavenly Father, today, each one of us is going to be confronted with opportunities for ordinary tenderness. I pray that your spirit would give us strength to live your love in these moments. In the moments where we simply react, in the moments where we, uh, we may forget because they're ordinary, Lord, do not let us lose the plot that love is the moral of your story and that we are called to live in that love. In Jesus' name, amen.